Welcome to this BESM podcast. I'm Ted Pandia, a medical student at the University of Manchester, and joining us today is Mike Davison. Mike is Managing Director of Ice Kinetic London, a massive sports medicine clinic and part of the FIFA Medical Centre of Excellence. Ice Kinetic hosts the largest football medicine conference in the world and is this year in Barcelona on the 13th and 15th of May. Mike, thanks for giving me the time to record this podcast. Oh, absolute pleasure. Mike, how has football medicine changed over the last decade? I think in one way it is absolutely unrecognisable from what it was in 2007, 8. Um, obviously the game, and particularly the Premier League, has changed with the TV revenue over the last 20 years. But in the last 10 years, what's happened is that um, football medicine doctors, physios, strength and conditioning coaches have not just multiplied, so there are more of them, but they're from around the world. So I always think about the situation at Liverpool in would have been 2009, 2010. Um, Rafa Benitez was um, cursing his luck and um, he had 14 of his first team players out of injury. Now three of those got injured in one game against Birmingham away on a cold Wednesday night. And maybe you're too young for this, but there are, it was the time that um, there was a lady in Belgrade using horse placenta and uh, ultrasound machines and sneaking out for a crafty fag. <laughs> Um, that Frank Lampard, Ashley Cole, went with Dr. Brian English, who was at Chelsea at the time. Um, he walked them in and he walked them out and she didn't touch them. But that was the kind of updated version of the physio with the sponge. So Liverpool decided at that point that they wanted to do two things. They wanted to look internationally and rather than just recruit a doctor who was born in that city, who had worked in that city and everyone in the club knew, they thought, okay, that doctor might be the right person for the role, but why don't we test them against a kind of global, not just benchmark, but global personality. So I was involved, luckily, at that point, and um, I think even more lucky, um, Peter Bruckner, who, in my mind, is a, for want of a better word, a rock star of sports medicine. Um, had been in football medicine because he'd been with the Socceroos at the World Cup in 2010. But he understood that the opportunity to come to the Premier League, the understanding of coming to a club like Liverpool, and also coming into an environment where the manager was brought into football medicine's value, not just this was another person that travelled on the team coach. I think that was the real turning point for football medicine. Um, Europe's had a, a much more stable football medicine culture, much more uh, integrated um, and much better communication across the team, coach, the fitness coaches, the doctors, the physios, and a little bit more stability because they tend to work for the club rather than for the manager. But um, no, I think if you talk about football medicine today, it's probably never been in a better place. But there are more people, more resources, so that means there's more physical resources, better training grounds, there's more money, more international, the managers, the players are much more, um, their backgrounds are much wider and more diverse than before, but I think there's probably more complexity and more pressure, and still, question mark, is there better results? So, with that in mind, where do you see the fo future of football medicine? 
uh, my background isn't as a, a medic or um, from a, the fitness and conditioning world. It's much more from a business administration, business development, um, recruitment side. So my focus is much more on the softer skills. I think football medicine right now is at a, I wouldn't say it's a turning point because it's, it's gone past that, but it's at a point where it needs to prove out its value. And I think the skills of communication, the skills of um, putting together at least the business case of why things should happen. Um, and I know that you and I are going to speak about the idea of over-medicine, but I think that football medicine's at a point now where um, it's established its kind of bedrock. Now it's got to understand how um, it justifies itself. And Alan Pardew was in the, in the Times, the London Times um, today, quoted to say, um, potentially he has gone soft on players because there might be too much data. There might be too many things that people decide are relevant. And he thinks that some of the injuries that he suffered with Crystal Palace this season was because the preseason itself was not, and I suppose these are his words rather than scientific words, was not tough enough. And that sports scientists and doctors are often a little fearful for their own jobs because of the culture of sacking managers that they are a little, rather than being black and white in their decision making, they're a little grey. So I think that it's probably a little bit more around communication, leadership styles, player well-being, um, and how you collectively manage workload is where football medicine has its biggest challenges. So if a player comes into you in a clinic with a history of re-injuries, how do you manage them differently? I think that the biggest thing for a player in that point, and I think that Alejandro Forlan, um, Argentinian um, central midfielder, uh, most recently at QPR and now back playing in his, his homeland in Argentina, he came to us about a year and a half ago and he'd had three ACL injuries in three seasons. One was a re-rupture, so two on one side and one on the other and he was 27, 28 years old. And I suppose what he had inside of him was a deep sense of vulnerability. He didn't know to trust. And, but he had a sense of optimism. Even if it was only an idea that he could, there was 1% chance that he could play, this is what he wanted to do. So his energy was that optimism of recovery, trying to defeat the pessimism of today's pathologies. So, um, that's a quote from Roberto Baggio, who in 2002 um, came with the very um, strong demand, which was, I've just had ACL surgery, I need to be back fit for selection in three months' time for the World Cup in South Korea and Japan. Can you help? And no one ever wants to take away the dream of a player, of either playing not just playing again, but potentially playing at the highest level again. So the first is, is that you have, to, you have to tap into their energy. You have to give them reassurance. You also have to be realistic with them. Um, and I think that um, you can't undo the past. And they have problems in kind of a little bit of blame culture. Sometimes the players will point either to moments or to people that they think have uh, undone 
their, you know, their dream. But what you have to do is focus them on today and what they can do today. And listening to them and letting them talk. And they'll know their bodies better than anybody else. The players that have gone through injury have actually had to reflect on why they do it and what's happened and whether or not there are any yellow or red flags along the way for them to uh, to understand that maybe they're about to tip over and being injured. So you go a little slower, you speak very proactively with them, listen to them, positive about the outcome, but you kind of have to work on their fears. And normally it's not the start of the rehab that's difficult. They tend to, if it's a long-term knee injury, they tend to plateau at about eight or nine weeks. So you, your strategy there is to give them a week's holiday. Let them just consolidate what they've done. Show them some pictures, show them some video of where they were six weeks prior. And then just tap into a kind of new sense of um, energy when they come back from the holiday. And it's normally a bit like when you're climbing a mountain. It's normally that last push from kind of camp four or looking up at the summit that they most worry about. That's kind of their danger zone. That's the point where, as a player, you think, oh. I remember when I heard that crack. I remember when I heard that pop. I remember when I heard that um, uh, that moment. And with Baggio in 2002, he knew he had to play Edgar Davids. And if you remember the way that Edgar Davids played the game, and um, at Barnet, I think, as player-manager, he got sent off seven times <laughs> two seasons ago, you understood that he put his body in behind the attacker and he wasn't afraid of um, having a little nibble at the ankle or the knees. So what you have to do is you have to game, you have to game scenarios. So you have to actually put them physically in danger, safely, but physically in danger, so that they know when they're backing into that big gnarly central defender, who might just sweep his leg around and take their, take their standing leg away from them, that nothing's going to pop, nothing's going to crack, and they need to, you know, they need to be able to play the game that they've always wanted to play. So you know, go a little slower, listen to them, focus on the kind of optimism of recovery, trying to defeat that kind of pessimism of today, and then just in that final, final kind of march for the summit is just a sense of overcoming certain fears. We're going to move on to about over-tendency for too much medicine, sports medicine, do you think this is an issue? As an observer, rather than a clinician, yes. I think there is data now, certainly from the Premier League, that shows um, the number of uh, interventions, be them MRIs, be them surgical or uh, injection therapies, uh, have skyrocketed in the last five years. So uh, not just the total spend, uh, but the actual number of procedures. And what tends to happen is that there's just an intense pressure to get um, not just a diagnosis, because the diagnosis can come through clinical judgment. The diagnosis, you know, people want to see something on a scan and they start looking for stuff. And it might be the agent, it might be the other player in the dressing room says, I'll just make sure you get a scan. It can be the player themselves that just looks for uh, looks for something because they can't explain it. Um, it can be a situation where um, the club get concerned because it might be a player that they want to 
they might want to sell in, a, in the window or they might actually have to make a decision of buying another defender at the end of the transfer window. So there's so much pressure heaped on that I think sometimes the doctors, the physios might just throw their hands up and say, all right, if you want the scan, you can have the scan. Problem is, do a scan, you find something. And um, what is happening is, is that, and this is something that Phil Batty, my medical director at Isokinetic and also you know, former head of sports medicine at Manchester City, he feels that clinical judgment is being devalued and is being lost. And there's an over-reliance on treating the scan rather than treating the player or the patient. So um, we know, and Eva Roos's phenomenal work um, out of Copenhagen group on the um, legitimacy, I think is the right word, of knee arthroscopy in certain age groups, not necessarily the active playing population of football, but certainly knee arthroscopy in that 50-year-old um, ex-player um, early signs of osteoarthritis is absolutely, a menisectomy in that scenario is absolutely useless. Um, the problem is that sometimes that the, it's easy to have an operation in the player's mind. It's not easy to do six weeks of conservative management of dedication to exercise therapy, knowing, and this is often the case with ankle ligaments, um, often knowing that you may then still have to have an operation. So for some people, they think it's certainty if you have an operation, but there's always complications. It's not the surgery itself, it's the whole process. It's going into hospitals, it's the open wound, etc. But um, no, I think I look at Daniel Sturridge and I think that's an example where a player had hip surgery because um, there was too much pressure around the situation, American ownership, um, a desire to push on in a club having lost Luis Suarez and having had a wonderful season and finishing second and nearly winning and the player um, looking for looking for answers and I fear and this is um, without really any deep knowledge of the inside of the case but I fear from the outside looking at that that um, he may have been um, there may be an over-medicine from a hip arthroscopy perspective, um, but time will tell. Uh, the upcoming isolated conferences in Barcelona at the new camp, what can our listeners expect to hear and see when they go there? The hope is something new. <laughs> so I think that um, one of the challenges you have as an organiser, and I think where Isokinetic are with the conferences, is that we are in the privileged position of organising. We have unbelievable support from the likes of Karim Khan, the British Journal, uh, from Peter Bruckner, from Roald Barr, from Barcelona and the FIFA Medical Centre of Excellence associated with the team there. But then just the groundswell of um, what I think is probably youth development in football medicine. So the average age of the conference now is under 30 which is just phenomenal. And I think with 88 countries so far, um, I'm going to say signed up, it means that people from 88 countries around the world, including Sudan, Burundi, Borneo, um, Eritrea, um, 38 from Argentina, 21 from Mexico, um, it's become the kind of, I'm going to say the people's conference, but it's become 
a conference for the world's football medicine family, football medicine communities. So what I'm hoping from the kind of 197 speakers that we've invited from 25 countries, that they won't repeat, <laughs> that they'll bring something new, and they might bring a little bit of philosophy. And I think it's probably going to be in the fringe um, of the conference, so in the free oral communications, in the posters, um, and probably also in the, uh, the contest, which is what I would equate to a, an X Factor or um, Football Medicine's Got Talent style scenario with Peter Bruckner acting as a um, Simon Cowell style um, pundit, if that's the right word. That's where I think the innovation, because what we have is a responsibility now really 20 years into the real development of football medicine is to project forward a vision of 20 years forward and the old guys in the room need to unite generations with those that are really going to own the end, own the end state of football medicine so um, those in their 20s and 30s maybe early 40s like myself are the ones that in 20 years time need to have taken all of the sweat, tears, hard work of the kind of distinguished faculty that we've got at the conference and, um, and create a legacy. Uh, what practical tips would you give to our listeners who are either involved with managing football, footballers or aspire to work, with, work in football medicine? So the first is find a mentor. The second is be humble and volunteer and know when you're better off asking someone else to do something or if you feel uncomfortable in a kind of clinical situation is ask <laughs> ask and it's so easy to ask now and back to the first point there are so many people out there in football medicine that are willing to help and it's not seen necessarily as a competitive advantage amongst the doctors and physios of the teams what people want are the best players on the pitch playing against each other. And at the end of the day, with most things in life, have a dream, make a plan, be determined and be persistent. And uh, I think that um, football medicine is not for everybody, but within sports medicine, I think football medicine in the next 20 years will take a real leadership role. Uh, those are really good tips, Mike. And uh, thank, thanks for coming here and uh, to give us the talk to give us the podcast and the upcoming lecture at the university uh, for more information about the upcoming conference please check out the links in the description uh, BGSM has over 200 free podcasts on a variety of to topics so, so do check them out but until next time thanks for listening and have a great night